Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you? Dear listeners, it's me, Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media and Better Living Through Chemistry. Um, it's very early in the morning uh, because there was just no way after the day I had yesterday I was going to record um, a solo podcast late in the day. Let me um, turn off my messages because I start getting texts at six o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, and then because Steve has got some commitments, we had to record, we have to record the dispatch podcast super early. So I'm recording this super, super early, uh, before I do that. So I'm going to, I have no idea. I've, I've literally zero plans for this one. Um, Normally, I, at least sort of in my head or on paper, scratch out some notes, but I just haven't had a second to breathe. Someone on Twitter just asked me like five minutes ago in response to a dog tweet, if I've ever written a list of conservative books that I think everybody should read. Um, I've made attempts a couple times and in very lighthearted g file tone. Um, I think the first one was like, 20 over 20 years ago um fun fact matt continetti read that g file back when it was at nr um and it's one of the things that pulled him down the rabbit hole of uh conservative eggheadery that eventually led to his most recent book and i've asked him and he's overdue so people can nudge him about this i've asked him to sort of do a, a more serious uh sort of liner notes, conservative bibliography, bibliographic essay for the dispatch about stuff people should read and all that. Because while I've read a lot about conservatism, I haven't stayed up on it in the way that I used to. Um, sort of like comic books, you know, I just I, like, it's a weird, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're a heart surgeon, you kind of have to stay up on where this current state of the science is kind of thing. But if you're a conservative, part of the point of being conservative is that, God, sorry about that. Um, that's weird. I'm going to put it in airplane mode and I'm still getting texts. Um, maybe airplane mode and do not disturb will do the trick. So um, one of the things about being conservative, though, is like uh, you shouldn't have to like constantly be reading up on the latest thinking about what people 200, 300 years ago thought about stuff or what happened 75 years ago. Um, I'm not saying you should ignore it entirely, but you know, there's just a lot of repetition. Um, 
And, you know, that's one of the interesting things about Continenti's book is it's a slightly different narrative of the last century of conservatism. Um, and uh, anyway, be that as it may, um, maybe I should do a new one because there are some, there's some updating um, that can probably be done. Um, but off the top of my head, since this person asked, um, like, you know, for Hayek, I've argued this many times probably on here as well um you should the gate the best gateway drug let's put it this way the most common gateway drug for hayek is road to serfdom which i think is a perfectly fine historical document it is worth reading um it's worth reading about it because it's more of a historic document than i think it is an introduction to the broad and the breadth and depth of hayek's thought um um, and you know, it was about a particular time and all that kind of thing, but it was hugely important as a historical document in the same way that sort of God and man at Yale was an extremely important historical document. But if you're going to ask me what books of William F. Buckley should I read to understand William F. Buckley, it would not be God and man in Yale. Uh, for Hayek, I would say the best for the general reader is the fatal conceit. Um, there's some controversy about it cause it was co-written sort of at the end of, of Hayek's life, but it's a good book and it's a good way of understanding things in broad brushstrokes. And then if you want more, um, you can go really deep. It's sort of like, it's a bad analogy in all sorts of ways, but screw it. It's a little bit like the Hobbit. It's accessible for the general reader, but there's stuff in, um, you know, once you get, once you get going, that's much more like the Silmarillion for the, for the, for the geeks. And, um, uh, you know, the writing of his, you know, the, there's a lot of sorts of stuff in the constitution of Liberty that I highly, highly recommend. Um, I think the knowledge problem, um, essay, which that's not its actual title. I cannot remember is probably the most important thing he wrote, at least for the, the kind of stuff that I argue about and talk about. Um, and as an, a guide for policymakers, um, in terms of intellectual conservative history, I think his essay, why I'm not a conservative, which has to be understood in its context because he was not, he was basically taking a shot at European conservatives and, and Edmund and not Edmund Burke, um, and Russell Kirk. Um, and he was actually arguing that he was something close to an American style conservative because in America, conservatives are interested in, in, conserving the revolutionary gains, um, of the enlightenment and the, uh, American founding. And, um, therein lies all the difference. Uh, you know, um, I'm not a huge, I, I, I have enormous amount of respect for Russell Kirk. I've never been just a huge fan of his prose style. I've not read any of his fiction. Um, um, but you know, if you're really, if you want to take a dive into this stuff, at, at more than a just sort of uh, self-informed, you know, as a more like I would, uh, what I'm frumfering at here is that I think the conservative mind is an important book. It's sort of foundational to a lot of conservative, um, to, to, to modern conservatism in many, many ways. It was, um, uh, it, it launched a, in some ways, a whole faction of conservative um, intellectual history, but I don't find it. I, I'm not. I'm not ultimately persuaded by the larger argument in it. 
and I'm not, and I don't, again, I don't love his prose style and I think it's a little antiquated, but it's also hugely important. So it depends on why you want to read this stuff. I actually, and I'm going to get off of this because I know there are a lot of listeners who don't want this stuff. Um, and I should probably, next time I have Continetti on, we'll just chew the fat over this kind of thing. But, um, I'm actually a big believer in, um, if you if you want to dive into some of these things to read um anthologies of you know collected uh essays of different writers because each one is short enough that it gives you a sort of sense of where people are coming from um and also gives you an opportunity it's sort of like going down a buffet right if like let's say you just never had indonesian food or something um, you go to a good buffet or a smorgasbord or whatever, and you can try each dish and decide not only what you like, but you also get a better sense of the entire, um, you know, cuisine in the senses you get, cause you can see the range of things. And there are a whole bunch of, of perfectly good ones like that. There's keeping the tablets. There's, which was co-edited by, uh, Charles Kessler um um in his traditional phase um there's the portable conservative reader by russell kirk which had some snarky omissions in it um uh, there was a recent one done by um a clear monster type who left out a lot of people and i uh i have not read it cover to cover or anything like that but um was it codavilia i can't remember um but I don't. Re I flatly don't recommend it because I think what they're, what what he's trying to do is 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 sneak in an argument for a redefinition of conservative by excluding a whole bunch of conservatives from from the canon. Um, Peter Watonsky had a really interesting four volume uh, series called "The Wisdom of Conservatism," which hard to find, out of print. Um, last time I checked, pretty expensive on eBay. Um, but it's a much broader understanding because it includes sort of the Anglo tradition as well. It gives you a much broader sense of what conservatism meant over time. Um, but I mean, there, there gotta be a bunch of others that I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, I really uh, recommend reading Irving Crystal's essays, um, in part because he, he never wrote any books really. Uh, he called himself a middle distance runner. And so he wrote wonderful, essays that you know you could make it through in one sitting and really gave you a sense of the breadth of his thought uh the two most famous books are, are i shouldn't say the most famous um you know there's reflections of a neoconservative he later came out with uh, neoconservatism and autobiography autobiography of an idea um there's a neoconservative reader out there um i wouldn't and one of the reasons why I recommend, there are a couple of reasons why I re recommend Irving Crystal. One, he was brilliant and a wonderful writer. Um, um, but two, I think a lot of people who go around tossing the, tossing around the phrase neoconservative, like they know what it means or like they think it uh, means liberal squish or warmonger or all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, read some of, read some of Irving's books and, and you'll be like, wait, this is the guy who's supposed to be the godfather of this rhino squish 
you know, warmonger party. And you'll find nothing like that in there. Um, um, I'm not going to recommend any Straussian stuff to you. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to pull out of this rabbit hole right now because I can just, I can feel some of you, um, wondering if you still have angry birds on your phone. Um, what else to talk about? So we had the, um, I'm not going to give you a summary cause I don't want to give you any spoilers, but it was a lot of fun. Um, we did the, the 500th episode of the remnant and it was great. Uh, Guy and Caleb and Ryan did a wonderful job. AI did a wonderful job setting the thing up. We learned some important, not, you know, life, not, not existential lessons about doing some of these dispatch type events. Um, like maybe we need some better or some dispatch signage. Um, you know, that, so when people take pictures, it just doesn't say AI in the background. Um, uh, some folks brought some uh, bingo cards, which was a surprise and a lot of fun. Ben Sass came in wearing a gold jacket, which made Ilya Shapiro green with envy. Um, but I got to I got to record an intro to the um, to the episode, which we're going to release next week. Um, so I don't want to give up. You know, I don't I don't need to repeat myself on all that. But it was a lot of fun, and I really want to thank everybody who came. I mean, I, I gotta say it means a lot to me. Some of the things that you know, the the gratitude from. Um, dispatch members and, and remnant listeners that, you know, um, was on display on Tuesday and I'm, you know, I'm a cynical curmudgeonly misanthropic guy, but it, um, it got me in the fields. Um, so as you can probably guess by now, I'm trying to avoid talking about this, these mass shootings. I hate these. I mean, everybody hates these things. If you don't hate these things, if for any reason, whether you're pro gun or anti gun or pro gun control, anti gun control, um, if you find yourself thinking, oh, today's going to be a good day because we get to talk about mass shootings or, you know, of, of, of black people, of kids, of anybody, um, you have made a poor choice of career, um, or you've staked out some soul harming ideological ground. Um, no one, no one should get a thrill or a sense of excitement about any of this. Um, and I don't want to cast too many aspersions or anything like that, but you sometimes, some of the people on, on, on one side or the other of these arguments, they just seem to be enjoying them a little too much. And I'm not saying that they are in their hearts. I would really, I would really hope that they're not. Um, but they just seem to get a little too into it, which is a bad look at, at, at minimum. I was talking about this a little bit with Charlie Cook yesterday and you know he's sort of on the same page. This this whole thing is just so grotesque and you know he wouldn't use the word demonic but you know it has that feel and it's so heart-wrenching. Um so I just can't I can't imagine um what those parents are going through. I can't imagine what it would feel like yelling at cops to the point where you get handcuffed because they won't go inside during an active shooter. Um, it's just, uh, it's going to get so ugly if the latest reports are correct that the, 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 the law enforcement, you know, lied to the press about there being an exchange of fire and a security officer or school resource officer at the scene. And it turns out it wasn't the guy just walked in and then just was given essentially an hour to shoot a bunch of little kids. Um, it's going to be, 
it's going to be so ugly because you're going to see a lot of the people on the right side of these debates scapegoating those cops. And I'm not saying when I say scapegoating, scapegoating implies pure innocence. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they're going to throw those guys under the bus and it's going to be ugly. And then you're going to have a lot of people on the left, you know, going, but anyway, it's just, it's just terrible, you know? And, um, and this is, this is one of these problems that like, if you, if you make arguments based on facts, right? If you want, if you actually express skepticism about what people are demanding happen, you know, whether it's banning assault rifles um, or extended magazines or um, confiscating guns. I mean, you just go down the list of the things that the, the hardcore gun control crowd wants. Um, if, if you say, you know, I get where you're coming from emotionally, but that, that just won't work then there is this weird tendency to, I shouldn't say it's weird because it's common in all sorts of realms, right? I mean, it's part, it's a human tendency. Uh, you just look at the people who express skepticism about uh, resisting Putin's taking of Ukraine and, you know, an enormous number of people say, okay, so you must be for, um, you must be pro Putin, right? It's, this, it's, it's, a, I think it's a similar psychological mechanism is that if you object to a proposed solution to a problem, you must be in favor of the problem. And, um, and it, it creates something of a censorious environment because no one wants to be called pro murdered kid, you know? Um, and you can see how in these kinds of environments where skepticism, um, uh, intellectual good faith intellectual objection to something um, is considered functionally pro evil. It gives you a better sense of how you get crazy moral panics in the past that lead to no good. You know, it gives you a sense of you know how um, you know things like the red scares happened, um, just as a psychological mention mechanism or witch hunts, right? If you know in a classic witch hunt kind of situation, you know, if you say, Hey, everybody hold on a second, you know, Abigail didn't float or whatever. Um, if the immediate response from everybody, including leaders is, Oh, you must be pro witch or you must be in on it. Or maybe you're a warlock. Um, you can just see how, um, uh, you know, sort of, what's the slouching towards Bethlehem line, you know, the best lack all conviction. Um, you can just see how, how emotions can win, win the day. Um, but it's, that doesn't take away the importance of actually making some objections and important arguments here. And, um, you know, as I talked about with Steve Gutowski, uh, yesterday, um, you know, there's just some things that aren't in the realm of, of maybe they're in the realm of the possible in some absolute sense, but they're really not in the realm of the practical or plausible, you know, so banning, banning for all time, 
large capacity magazines, it's just not going to happen. Um, um, because there are hundreds and hundreds of millions out there. They're easy to fabricate. Um, and, uh, they're essentially untraceable. So, uh, there's a secondary market for them. People can make their do DIY them. Um, and so you can talk about the importance of, as a normative thing, banning these things, but it's actually just not going to have the effect that, um, people want. And you find, you know, there's, there are other things that, you know, are, are difficult to talk about in this kind of climate, but that doesn't make them less true. And it's sort of like, you know, all this talk about, you know, kids are the number, uh, guns are the number one cause of death of kids. Uh, you know, there's some statistical gamesmanship going on with some of that. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, that's ha one of those reasons that's happening is because of guns and the, the COVID stuff and, and crime and, you know, and all that. Um, uh, one of them is, is that we've done a good job of reducing how kids die in other circumstances. So this rises, you know, to the top. Um, but also includes depending on who you're talking about and what list, what, what statistics you're, you're referring to. Um, you know, it's also including those numbers also include a lot of 16 and 70 year, 17 year old, um, sort of gang on gang violence situations, which are bad. And I'm all in favor of clamping down on, but that doesn't have, that is not the, the ideological, uh, examples, um, or data that the people who want to talk about doing something quote unquote about guns have in mind because, um, you know, in places like New York and Chicago, the, that runs into the, um, the movement to, you know, reduce incarceration. And so you get, you know, kids with, with handguns, um, not getting jail time, not getting prosecuted, getting charged with misdemeanors, right? Letting, being let go on bail, that kind of thing. And, you know, I got to say that's soft on guns too, right? I mean, it, it cuts both ways. If, if you want more gun control laws, but you don't want to enforce, you know, criminal laws that are on the books about, you know, uh, threatening people with a gun, carrying, a um, an illegal gun, buying an illegal gun, committing a robbery with an illegal gun um, uh, because the perpetrator fits a demographic profile that you think um, uh, should be treated with more leniency. Well, that's, you're also being lenient on, on guns. There's also just this weird way we talk about guns as if it's the guns committing the crimes. It's a little bit like the jerk and, you know, talking about the cans um, you know, I get that it's a cliche and a bit of a dodge, but the whole, um, you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people thing is, is happens to actually be true. And, um, um, and this idea that somehow we're going to crack down on illegal guns without talking about the illegal use of guns 
is just is a weird sort of locution and 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 democrats do that a lot at the same time like and as i mentioned this with 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 steve gutowski i i gotta say like the the argument for body armor is pretty weak um at least as far as i've seen i mean i i you know i get self-protection okay but part of steve's argument about the need for high capacity magazines was that in a and a vigorous exchange of gunfire, um, the citizen protecting himself is put in danger by having to reload. I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm skeptical about that scenario as well, but fine. Okay. I get that argument. Um, and again, you don't have to justify why you want guns because there's a, I mean, politically you might have to, you might have to your spouse, whatever, but like as a constitutional matter, you have a right to have these things, I believe. Um, and, uh, and so you can just like them for aesthetic reasons. I mean, whatever, but, uh, th in terms of the argument that you need them for self preservation, um, and self protection, which I, I totally recognize. I'm just not sure that that argument is all that persuasive when it comes to the, um, the need for, um, extensive, for expanded uh, uh, ammo magazines um, in your long gun, in your military style long gun. Um, but on body armor, you know, the thing that you hear constantly um, from people after these things is a good guy, a, a bad guy with the only thing that we need to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. There's less merit than people want there to, than some people want there to be. Um, but it's a perfectly valid point, I think, as far as these things go. Um, but if mass shooters start wearing body armor, um, that becomes simply as a as an empirical point, not really true. Um, in in Buffalo, we had a good guy with a gun, the, the retired cop um, security guard at the supermarket, and he fired on the Buffalo shooter and had he not had the Buffalo shooter not had body armor, the Buffalo shooter would be dead and a good guy would have stopped a bad guy with a gun and he would have saved a bunch of lives. And you know, the guy was a hero anyway, but he would have been, he would have been a much bigger hero or at least a living hero. Um, and he would have saved more lives and would have been great. Couldn't do that because this guy wore body armor. And if you're going to tell me that again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing for banning body armor there's certainly scenarios where i can see where law enforcement or military or security um need it um require it but there are lots of things that are legal for military and that kind of stuff that are hard to obtain for normal citizens and i know that offends some second amendment types it doesn't drive me nuts um and the thing is is like but that that self-preservation you know i need time I can't waste time reloading. Um, if you're going to tell me that you need it for defense because um, you don't have time, you know, you, you can't waste time running for cover or something, you know, it takes a long time to comparatively speaking, put on body armor. And um, it feels like, the the use for body armor for non you know again for non-professional personnel is really 
offensive rather than defensive. And again, I'm not talking about banning it, but I think treating it as like one of the indicia for a uh, red flag triggering a red flag law seems reasonable to me. I'm open to to correction on this. Um, um, and so I, I, I again, I'm exhausted with this. I'm probably going to have to talk about this again on the Dispatch podcast. But um, I just find the whole thing incredibly depressing and and tragic. And I I will probably write about it in the G file today. But I'm not going to write about guns because I, I honestly think that the 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 gun problem uh such as it is is downstream of the real problems um oh but one thing last on this is not really about the gun stuff uh so i think it's garrett hake it's the some guy from nbc um but i could be wrong about who it is uh but some reporter asked ted cruz um about the shooting stuff and he said and the reporter was like what is why is it only in america why is this american exceptionalism so bad and ted cruz did something i thought pretty asinine he was like he all of a sudden turned it into uh you know conservative super patriot martyr stuff and said i'm sorry you think american exceptionalism is bad and the reporter corrected. He says this aspect of American exceptionalism, and Cruz used this as an opportunity to just get away from the conversation and said, "It's clear you have an agenda." Bless your heart, and and walked away. And the thing is, again, I can't remember who the reporter was, um, but entirely right. I mean, how many times have I talked about on here about how American exceptionalism um, is not supposed to mean? we're better than everybody else. That's not where the phrase comes from. And one of the parts of American exceptionalism is that we're violent. We're, we're too violent, have been for a long time. And, um, you know, you can argue that it was somewhat weirdly admirable in the 19th century, maybe in sort of Western culture that we had this sort of do it ourselves, fix our own problems, you know, resort to violence thing, you know, for the wild west. I'm not sure in reality, if you went back in the time machine and, and saw how things were solved through violence that you'd be like, yeah, this is a much better way to do things, but it's just always been part of our, it's been part of our culture for a very long time for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but the, the way Cruz turned it into an attack on the on the w wonderful uniqueness of America, I just thought was, you know, a really craven, cynical thing, um, and a wonderful illustration of of my point, um, because we are just historical. Like where the phrase American exceptionalism comes from is, it refers to the fact that we are just weird cultural outliers, um, and in fact, on like violent stuff. I saw Tim Carney tweeted something about this the other day. We look more like um, a rich version of a lot of South American countries. Um, and Canada looks like the exceptional one in the Americas because it looks more like Europe on this stuff. Um, and we look, when it comes to this metric, more like, you know, Brazil. Um, of course, we look more like Canada in other ways, but I think it's an interesting sort of point. But, you know, 
it's absolutely fair to say that that we are that one of the worst aspects of American exceptionalism um, today is mass shootings like this. Um, is you know the 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 prevalence of gun violence, and um, I can defend ownership of guns, the Second Amendment, and all these kinds of things. It gives me. It, it, that confers no obligation in any way to defend gun violence, um, lawless, illegal, murderous, um, evil gun violence. Where else to go? Um, all right. I promise I won't dwell on this, but I did say last week and a bunch of people did remind me that I'd, I'd mentioned, uh, some of the, my Star Trek gripes. Um, I did talk about this a little bit on Glop because I wanted, for remnant listeners who don't know, I do this uh, podcast uh, with Rob Long and John Podoritz, and we're three middle-aged guys talking about pop culture stuff, and for the most part. And uh, it's called Glop because it's Goldberg, Long, small O, and then Podoritz. And um, so Glop culture rhymes with pop culture. Um, um, and of course, <laughs> because we're old, all three of us are old nostalgics. We end up talking more about stuff that was pop culture 40 years ago than we talk about what's going on in pop culture today, but that's okay. That's pretty much what the audience comes for. Um, regardless, uh, on the Star Trek thing. Um, so I've, I've been keeping up on it all, right? Um, I have to admit, I never really watched that Scott Bakula one, but other than that, I think I've watched all the franchises. Um, and, um, and so Paramount plus, which I subscribe to for reasons I'm not, that are not entirely clear. Um, I watched Picard, I watched, uh, Star Trek discovery and I watched, um, I've been watching, which is still dropping new episodes, um, strange new worlds. And, I don't want to scare off everybody who's not Trek related. So I'll just keep this a little higher, uh, more high concept. Um, the discovery one, which I thought started pretty well. The first season, it's like in its third season has so unbelievably leaned into, um, sort of left wing woke, particularly on like sexual issue stuff. Um, you know, there are, there are various, trans characters and and it's and i can live with a lot of the stuff i mean star trek next generation had introduced some some trans issues in a couple episodes um i have i really don't have any problem with science fiction writers playing with these cultural things in ways that are that that test expectations the original star trek did that um you know, I think the first interracial kiss on, on TV ever was between Captain Kirk and Uhura, and they um, um, actually banned the airing of it in a bunch of southern um, markets. Um, and there were other, you know, uh, oh, that so that reminds me, that's one of my gripes is like this guy uh, David Marcus who wrote this piece for uh, the Fox website about how. Star Trek basically discovery has gone super woke and that's never, and, and it's gone never happened before. And that's never happened before. I agree with him that it's gone way too woke in terms of 
discovery. It's, um, it's exhausting how they have to squeeze in interesting, um, action and plot development things, um, at the margins around all of these sort of, uh, relationship and stuff about feelings. I mean, the show is essentially, I'm not, I'm not saying it's entirely about trans stuff. It's entirely about feelings how people feel. Do they feel respected? Do they feel recognized? Are they body shamed? And it's exhausting because it's a waste of resources and it's a waste of a sort of a good setup um, and some good actors too um, into this incredibly self-indulgent sort of lifetime movie channel and space crap. Um, and so I agree with this. I agree with Marcus who I've met once or twice um, on that. But this idea that Star Trek has never done this before, I think, is sort of ludicrous. Um, and he got a lot of pushback about it, and he kind of anticipated some of the criticism in the piece. But, you know, the idea, you know, what set him off, what set off a lot of people is in the final episode of the la latest season of Discovery, Stacey Abrams has a cameo as a walk-on as, like, um, the president of Earth. And it's just dumb and it's sort of fourth wall breaking and it's exhausting. And it's one of these things that I'm sure in house, everyone thought was incredibly clever and it makes that all the more maddening that they didn't understand that there are going to be lots of people who thought it wasn't clever at all. Um, and, you know, it reminds me in, in high school, the head of the school told me they were told our class, we're going to have this incredible treat. Um, and at graduation, this great surprise. And, you know, we thought it was going to be some special guest or some party announcement or so, I don't know. And instead it was, uh, a, an additional class speaker who was just this guy who gave this treacly annoying, um, school ass kissing speech um and this earlier competition and the fact that the school thought it was so clever well the rest of the class was like really we have to hear this again you know that's how i felt i don't know we need a german word for that emotion um but more broadly um so uh and then there's picard which is just finished its third season it's not it's not good it's also uh, really ham fisted in its politics and, um, um, and ridiculous in ways that are kind of infuriating. It's so it's, it's really like, like Stalinist art where you have to have the political message just crammed down your throat. So there's this alternative timeline, which is sort of like a parallel dimension where, which, you know, dates back to the original Star Trek, which they had all sorts of parallel dimension stuff. Um, uh, you know, Spock with a goatee and all that. Um, but of course, uh, in, you know, because the butterfly effect, um, has taken place. That's a, that's a, I believe that's a, goes back to Ray Bradbury. Um, in one of his short stories where, you know, someone steps on a butterfly in um when they time travel back to the dinosaur age and it screws up the future in all sorts of ways um 
a version of time travel that I think they decisively debunk in um, the Avengers movies, but that's a topic for another time. Um, anyway, and this this alternative reality, Earth has become super Trumpy, as you know, the sort of the left would argue it is, and um, uh, xenophobic, and we're just we're we're we're, we're bigoted against all these other races. Um, and it's so heavy handed. And when it's not doing that stuff, um, it's more feelings, you know, and the strange new world that Picard has to explore is essentially his childhood. And they completely screw up all sorts of continuity things about the Star Trek universe in order to make these heavy handed things about Kirk or not Kirk Picard encountering and dealing with his mother's own mental health problems and his own conflicts with his father. They write out of the entire childhood story, uh, Picard's own brother. And anyway, so I had tweeted, um, couple weeks ago when i was finishing the third season that uh um that's just the writing is just so bad and it's it, again i was referring to pretty clearly about bad writing in terms of star trek dork things right it's violating you know, like how come picard, how come guinan the Whoopi goldberg character doesn't recognize Picard when he goes back in time when we know that he had actually met her earlier in time from, you know, the series and, and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. And this guy, I haven't gone back to look up his name, but, uh, blue check Mark guy who's a left wing political cartoonist for some Wisconsin or, or Minnesota newspaper. He claims to be the oldest still working political cartoonist in America he writes this response, this dunking response on me on Twitter, where he says, you know, the writing is fantastic. It's by Michael, you know, Shabon, is that how you pronounce his name? Um, and and I, I can't remember who else. I don't know if it was his wife or a co-writer, but, um, and they're brilliant. And, um, you know, it was like, almost like he was auditioning for a job with them. And then he follows up with this thing about how, the reason I must not like it, you know, I must think the writing is bad is because it's too brutally honest about, you know, Trumpism and bigotry and xenophobia and authoritarianism and all these kinds of things. And it was so asinine that, I mean, I try really hard not to let Twitter beefs piss me off. And that's one of the reasons I don't engage on Twitter nearly as much as some people would like or as much as I used to. It's because it's just not worth the time. Um, and that, that's not the time I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, it's not worth the emotional energy. Um, um, but this just, it just so friggin' got under my skin. I kind of felt like Seinfeld in the episode where, um, Chris Watley, uh, converts to Judaism and Seinfeld is convinced that, um, uh, he's doing it just for the, to be able to tell Jewish jokes. Um, and it, and Elaine's like, so this offends you as a Jew and Seinfeld's like, no, it offends me as a comedian. And like, like it's not so much that I got enraged at being accused of being a, 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 a Neanderthal bigot 
who can't handle what what this jackass thought was like really subtle political writing when it was like incredibly ham-fisted dumbass hit you over the head sort of stalinist agitprop writing um uh and he thought because he was too dumb to understand how ham-fisted it was that it must be that i'm even dumber to not be able to grasp the 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 searing indictment of xenophobia and bigotry and authoritarianism that these guys were putting forward and the fact is is that i was perfectly willing to tolerate all of that i think that stuff's dumb but like i'm used to that kind of nonsense premise from star trek for decades now what offended me was that it violated all sorts of geek rules all sorts of like star trek nerd rules um anyway it was weird and and kind of embarrassing and um that i got so pissed off about it um and i'm sure there were other star trek things that i wanted to talk about but i again can feel people you know wandering away saying i wonder i wonder what mike bombero barbero is saying on the daily podcast uh from the bathroom stall um and uh so i'll probably change subject oh, that's a reference for for long-time listeners who don't may not remember is i have this love hate thing with the daily i don't listen to it on a daily basis um it's the new york times uh one of the new york times daily podcasts that usually takes one subject and sort of walks you through it i like the concept of it and they've got deep resources to do that kind of thing with some good reporters um i just cannot stand the way Barbero does interviews and talks. Um, I hate it. It sounds like um, he's really struggling. I want to keep this clean because we got kids in the car. Um, it sounds like he's really struggling gastrointestinally in um, in some public bathroom where he's got to, for work reasons, still conduct an interview over the phone. And so, you know, someone will say, and that's why border, the border border patrol uh, service says they're overwhelmed. And then Barbero will respond, uh, and it just I find it so incredibly distracting and weird. And I apologize for people for being so gross, but it just it's 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 um, uh, I can't I I will only listen to it when I really need to get up to speed either on the merits of a subject or on what the take of the New York times is on a subject. And sometimes those are not the same thing, but they're both useful to understand in my line of work, where to go from here. Uh, there's a lot of rank punditry in the, in the 500th episode. So I'm, I'm, and I'm probably gonna have to do some of it in, in 15 minutes with the dispatch guys, but I gotta say, you know, I'm feeling, better about the the GOP these days I mean not like in terms of where they stand on this or that issue or um any of that kind of stuff it just does feel that like at the margins nature is healing a little bit um and I should say before going you know not just in the GOP um I haven't watched this Ricky Gervais comedy special on Netflix but the fact that Netflix put it out and is standing by it despite supposedly being uh, anti, um, you know, despite being allegedly transphobic, 
um, I think is a good sign. I think the fact that the head of Netflix came out with this letter saying, if you don't like the politics of our, um, if you can't handle uh, us putting out products that that conflict with your politics, maybe you should find another job. That feels like healing. Um, and and let me just say, I, I think this is like a, just a hugely important point before I get back to um, uh, the GOP. Like, you can, like, I, it's such a strange thing to me that that young, I understand why activists pretend or even convince themselves that they have the right position on this kind of stuff. But, like, I find it, utterly bizarre that young people honestly cannot understand in theory forget in practice right because cultural comedy is weird and jokes that were once appropriate are not appropriate anymore um you know the whole concept of too soon is a really difficult one to judge and is audience dependent and it's joke teller dependent and all that kind of thing um obviously i would not tell any jokes having anything in a thousand miles to do with you know uvalde texas and this shooting probably ever um but i'm sure they're coming out of wall street somewhere because that's where that's where the too soon jokes usually do um but the point is is that you know there's no there's not a science to this so i understand in practice why sometimes certain jokes fall flat or are inappropriate or in bad taste totally get that but in theory I don't, I don't understand why in theory, so many of these, um, sort of wokester types cannot grasp that jokes that made at the expense of certain groups are not necessarily examples of organized hatred towards those groups or efforts to foment hatred towards those groups. I just... It is a strange thing to me. And if you take two seconds, spend spend one afternoon just going around, if you have satellite radio in your car, listening to the different comedy channels, which are you know top heavy with bits from 10 and 15 years ago. And, um, and just think about, just take a mental list of, of the different groups that are um, made fun of in one way or the other, right? I mean, whether it's, you know, New Yorkers or people who live in San Francisco or gay people or Jews or Irish or black or Catholic or, you know, you can just go down this enormous list and a lot of the jokes are told by people who are members of those groups or used to be members of those groups or a family in those groups. I mean, it's a whole genre about, you know, how my Republican father is blah, 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 or my super religious mother, yada, 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 or, you know, I'm in an, uh, I'm in a interfaith marriage and, you know, you know, it's so weird how Jews do this and whatever. The idea that these people are all trying to foment hatred, um, against people of other groups is just so weird to me. I mean, sure, sometimes I can see examples where that's actually true, but 99% of the time, if you're a professional comedian, that's not the, that's not the aim. The aim is just to make people laugh. And the reason why you pick certain groups to make jokes about is precisely because there are, um, 
there's an discomfort about talking about certain subjects, right? I mean, I, I, I once thought about writing a book on laughter because it's a really fascinating philosophical and, um, and, and physiological thing, right? And there's all these theories of different kinds of laughter. I'm not going to get into all of it, but like, what is laughter is a really weird, complicated, neuroscientific, philosophical thing. And there are good kinds of laughter and bad kinds of laughter. Plato writes about laughter. Laughter is interesting. Um, you know, but in broad brushstrokes, one of the explanations for laughter is that you have internal tensions or discomfort about a certain subject. And, um, and you have a certain degree of feelings of alienation and anomie that you're the only one who feels this way or that you're sort of trapped psychologically in it with an inability to articulate it. And then you hear someone tell a joke that captures that same thing and reconciles it in your, in your mind in some way. And the laughter is the release of, of that tension. There are other definitions of laughter. Don't, I'm not trying to sound like I'm some sort of super expert here, but there's a reason why there's such a rich history of, did you ever notice um, humor? One of the reasons why did you ever notice humor works is that we spend our lives feeling a little bit like we are an island in the world and that we are caged up and we're the only ones who see the world the way we do. And, and then when you have someone who's very good at telling a joke, do this whole, did you ever notice? And it's the exact same thing that you thought you were the only one who ever noticed. Um, it, it's this almost communal affirmational thing. And if done right, it expresses itself often as laughter. And, um, you can see, you know, if you've ever, when you fall in love, one of the ways you fall in love, um, not the only way, but part of falling in love is finding someone who sees the world, at least in some significant degree, the same way that you do. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not alone. It's that feeling of, of, of connection that comes. And it may not, you know, with someone you fall in love with express itself necessarily as laughter, though it always, it often does. Um, but it's this uplifting thing. And, um, Anyway, so like when, when comedians tell jokes, they're not, the whole point isn't to like dehuman, sometimes it is fine, but like, it's not what Dave Chappelle is trying to do. It's, it's not what, again, I haven't seen the Ricky Gervais thing, but it's, it's probably not what he's trying to do. It's not what Mark Marone, and it's not what good comedians are fundamentally trying to do. Robin Williams told lots of jokes about lots of different groups. He wasn't trying to dehumanize people. He was trying to... He, have human connections with the people in the audience and the sort of rote categorical refusal to understand how comedy works, how jokes work, um, how people make connections, um, how like comedians actually, um, humanize in many ways, the people that are, they're being accused of dehumanizing is just really, really weird to me because I thought this stuff, look, I, and I, I'm sure I put in more thought into what laughter is and how comedy works than a lot of people and certainly not nearly as much as a lot of other people. But, um, I think everybody is sort of of my generation and older intuitively grasps sort of what I'm talking about. Um, and I'm just sort of fascinated by the willful refusal to understand this stuff by a certain segment 
of society is just sort of fascinating to me. And again, it's always going to be true that there are going to be certain people for whom a the subject matter of a joke is not going to be funny. Um, and that's going to change based on the topic, right? Um, but uh, that's not a reason to say that 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 to cast the intent of comedians as something evil or even the practice of comedy as as something evil. Um, oh gosh, how did I get? Oh, I got on this. I got on this because I was talking about the GOP. Did I talk about the GOP? I, I I need some intern to sit here and just listen so that I can ask him a question and say, did I talk about it already? And they can nod at me because right now, um, all I have, I, I truly have this. It's a really bad replica, but I love the thought at my 50th birthday party, my friend Scott Hall, who I will hear from in about 72 hours when he finds out I mentioned him on the podcast, um, got me a um, bobblehead of 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 me standing with a bunch of copies of liberal fascism with a cigar in my hand and it's funny i didn't know you could do this kind of thing but i swear it's like much more of a dead ringer for tom nichols the atlantic writer than it is for me um but that's my intern here it's like it's looking at me quietly slightly as i shake the table um bobbing its head um uh, so assuming that I didn't actually talk about the GOP, I, I kind of feel like, um, particularly post-Georgia, that it's becoming more clear that while Trump is definitely, I still think Trump is the establishment of the GOP, um, but as as we know from the last 30 years, establishments can be strong or weak, and I think he is in effect a kind of weak establishment of the GOP. People have to speak well of him for the most part among elected Republicans um, um, if they're going to speak about him at all. But he's he, the way to the, the way to think about it is that. Um, and Chris talked about this a little bit at the, the 500th episode and, and you've all written about this um, the way to think about it is like. Um, Trump is the head of a faction of the Republican Party. And it's arguably the most powerful faction. Um, it's certainly the most energetic faction. Um, it's certainly by far the loudest faction. Um, but it's just a faction. And, and since time immemorial, certain factions have taken over the head of the of one party, you know, taken over the leadership positions of one party or another. There were a long time, you know, the DLC Democrats ran the Democratic Party. Now the DLC Democrats, you know, the new Democrats, whatever they were called. Um, are completely out of favor and almost like uh, the last rangers of Middle Earth uh, uh, hiding in the woods because their numbers have been so depleted. And some progressive faction runs the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party, there were times when the Nelson Rockefeller types ran things, then they all died off. And again, they died off. Don't tell me that like the party has a lot of Nelson Rockefeller types in it. Um. And then there were times when like there were Southerners around, you know, there was a time when the Wisconsin mafia, and I don't mean this as sort of the criminal thing. I mean, Scott Walker, Paul Ryan, um, Reince Priebus, um, that whole crowd was, so, you could, was certainly a faction of the GOP, but it was also, you could argue, kind of the establishment. Um, 
And so the Trumpists are an establishment, but the good thing, and, and, but they're also a faction. And the good thing about that is, um, and again, this is sort of Yuval's point is that, um, Trump is once again being stupid about his own political fortune. And I know this bothers the hell out of people who are like, you, you know, you say Trump, you know, is his own worst enemy. You know, you never became president, yada, yada, yada. And yeah, fine. Okay. But like, he could have done a better job as being president and he would have gotten reelected. Um, and um, I don't think any reasonable person of any ideological stripe um, can make a persuasive argument. I'm open to it. Send me an email about it. Can make a persuasive argument that obsessing about how the 2020 election was stolen is good for Trump's political prospects for 2024. Um, it forces, it, it's, a, it's a wedge issue within the party. It divides um, different Republicans against each other that don't wouldn't necessarily need to be divided going into the midterms. Um, it creates an albatross for Republicans in purplish states or purplish districts that need to win non need to win, you know, moderate Republicans or non MAGA Republicans, and also, uh, maybe a few independents and, and, or even conservative Democrats, um, by forcing them to have to say the election was stolen, it turns those people off. Um, the people who believe the election was stolen would show up for Trump if he never spent a day talking about it. Um, and, uh, meanwhile, it, it repels more people, uh, than it attracts. Um, it's forced even people like Mo Brooks to say, look, you know, um, I think we need to talk about the future and not the past. It is a dumb, self-indulgent, narcissistic, psychologically needy thing for Trump to obsess about. Um, and it's not in his political interest and neither is picking, uh, doing all these endorsements normally. Former presidents don't do that many endorsements or maybe even any endorsements. They try to stay out of politics. And instead, his criteria for endorsing candidates is almost entirely on sort of selfish, self-aggrandizing, uh, petty um, uh, or backward looking reasons. Right. Do you support the big lie? Do you think Trump is awesome? Um, in some cases, it's do you think those things and you will win? Um, and it is not an exercise in party building. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It is an exercise in trying to assert dominance over the Republican party, um, and to make it Trumpier. And I think in some States and in some aspects that's been successful in other States and other aspects, it's been an abject failure. And I think instead of, of asserting more control over the GOP, what he's doing is he is tightening his control and defining his faction. And when you do that, you make it easier for the people not in his faction to say so. And um, things can still get and will get dumb, dumber and stupider for a while, uh, you know, quite often. Um, but I am much more in favor of a GOP where it's clear that there are pro-Trumpers and anti-Trumpers and non-Trumpers 
and they're all allowed to say so than a GOP where everybody has to say they're a Trumper and you don't know who they are and you don't know who's lying and who's not. And that's what we had for four years under his presidency. And that's that's sort of coming to an end. And I think that that's good news because it now you can now have intramural arguments and debates about things um, and you, you can know everybody can sort of know where people are coming down. And I think that's part of the process of the party and to some extent the country healing. Um, speaking of the debates, um, uh, my colleague Klon Kitchen wrote, I thought, a, a brave and very well done piece um, for his newsletter, The Current, on, on Heritage's waywardness these days. It is, I, I think isolationist is definitely too strong a term, and there's still a lot of good people at Heritage. Um, but the new president of Heritage seems to be more interested in being a Fox and talk radio personality than the head of a serious think tank. Um, and I've always had my disagreements with the heritage model. Um, I've had lots of friends who work at heritage. Heritage has done some really important things. I am not trying to throw them on, you know, it is, um, a fellow right of center think tank in Washington along AI and, you know, um, we've, you know, we, we, we both signed the protocols to destroy Brookings. So look, there's, I, 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 am not trying to sort of create some sort of grand existential um, schism here, even if I could, but heritage increasingly seems like it's more interested in being sort of a, the, this happened with the, at first with the tea parties, right? The, the, the transition with dement and all that sort of the tea parties embassy in Washington. And now it's kind of like the MAGA embassy in Washington. Um, at least that's what the messaging kinds of feel, kind of feels like. And, um, and I think that's a shame for all sorts of reasons because heritage is an important voice. But as, 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 as Klon points out, you know, uh, was this guy, Kevin Roberts, who's the head of, of heritage, you know, it's a lot of sort of Ted Cruzian screaming about elites and we won't cave to the elites and all this. And this is a guy who makes a lot of money working for a think tank that claims to be the most influential think tank in the world. Um, whose scholars talk to Congress all of the time, that is quoted in the elite media all of the time, that is sort of a household name across the country that raises tens and tens of millions of dollars. Um, if it's not an elite institution, you know, uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's a hated institution among a lot of liberal elites, but, you know, that doesn't make it. I mean, you had different aristocratic families in the middle ages that hated each other. That didn't mean one was elite and the other one wasn't. It meant they were competing elites, but you guys don't want to hear me get into all the, you know, Italian elite theory stuff again, particularly not a hundred, uh, an hour and six minutes into this thing. Um, but one of these things that, that I'm, I'm seeing in his, in this, in the president's heritage tweets and all this is this, and from other people as well, is that you know we are now finally going to get the um, intramural debate on foreign policy that you know we haven't had for thirty or forty years or whatever, um, and I I find these kinds of things exhausting. Um, we've had internal debates on the right about foreign policy since since I was going to say since I came to Washington, but like. 
there were those debates before I came to Washington. Um, they are part of the, the, the natural state of, of foreign policy um, eggheadery and like who's arguing against whom and who's winning and who's losing um, is uh, constantly shifting. And you can say there, maybe there've been times of more consensus and, or less, but that's all fine. But I find, I just generally find these things. I tweeted about this the other day, you know, I've written a lot about this when it comes to this argument about how it's time for a, you know, frank conversation about race. Um, and I'm sure, I think I've actually done it at various points. If you went into Nexus Lexus and searched for, um, you know, phrases like long overdue conversation or about race, or we need an honest conversation about race, or now is the time to have the full and frank debate about race and yada, yada, yada. People have been saying this, uh, probably some pundit activist politician has said this daily for the last 50 years. And in that time you have universities that have dedicated, you know, forget courses, majors to frank conversations about race. There are buildings where frank conversations about race are supposed to take place. There are academic journals all dedicated supposedly to frank conversations about race. Every three days at minimum, the Washington Post or the New York Times has an op-ed um, telling hard truths about race. And um, every couple of years, Hollywood will give an Oscar for best picture or best director or best, uh, you know, director or whatever, um, for a movie that makes an important contribution to the dialogue about race. Uh, this whole fight about CRT is one of the things that annoys me so much about it is it's premised on this idea that we've never taught kids anything about race before when in fact we've been talking about in maybe, maybe not in every school district, but in lots of school districts. Um, and certainly, you know, all the schools I went to, uh, you know, talk about the civil rights movement, slavery, the civil war. Uh, these were, you know, my wife had the same experience in a, in school in Fairbanks, Alaska, um, where American history was basically boiled down to American racial history with the exception of maybe like world war one. Um, and, uh, if you think that we have not had a conversation about race in this country, I don't know what conversations you do think we've been having. And part of the problem I have is that when people say it's long, it's time for us to have this long overdue conversation. If you actually look at the people who say that kind of stuff, most often it's the kind of people who have not stopped talking about race their entire careers. You know, I don't, Michael Eric Dyson, you know, Ibrahim Kendi, Beverly D'Angelo, um, you know, virtually, you know, every, you know, white liberal who writes about race loves to talk, use these sorts of formulations. And, and uh, Al Gore used to say it all the time. Um, um, I've written about that a bunch and, um, and my problem with it is, among other things, 
they say they want an honest conversation about race. And then if you say something honest, they punish you for it. Right. At least if you say something honest from the right, they punish you for it. Um, and what I think the better way to, uh, you know, and I, or I'll give you an example, which I wrote about just comes to mind that I think is probably less likely to get me in a lot of trouble. Um, uh, Newt Gingrich in a, in a, in a less crazy period of his life said something about how we have to have, um, a hard look at, um, bilingual education because it seems to be more of an agenda for a certain group of ideological activists and, and teachers and less of an actual betterment for kids. I'm completely paraphrasing, maybe misparaphrasing, but it's true is that a lot of parents don't, a lot of Hispanic parent, immigrant parents don't want their kids to get bilingual education because it slows down their learning of English and they understand that mastering English is the best path towards, um, uh, you know, a better career. Um, but there are a whole bunch of institutions and activist groups and individuals who are invested in bilingual education because it's what they do, right? It's sort of one of these identity politics activist things. And I remember writing about it because there was nothing that Newt said, um, contrary to a lot of things he says these days, that was objectionable to me about it. It was just like, this is an empirical thing um, that, you know, we should, you know, acknowledge. And he was wildly denounced by Hispanic groups, um, for his bigotry. And I didn't think there was anything bigoted in what he said. I don't think there was any bigoted intent to it. Um, but in a, you know, in a 10 minutes, you know, it's figuratively speaking, 10 minutes before Newt had said that, many of these same people were the kinds of people or were the actually the people saying, oh, we need an honest conversation about the role of immigrants in America today, or we need an honest conversation about, you know, um, income inequality for Hispanics, or whatever it is. And, and my point being that when people say they want an honest conversation or a vigorous debate about something, what they actually mean isn't that we haven't had an honest conversation or that we haven't had a debate about something. It's just that their side and the argument has not won. And so we hear a lot of this about the gun stuff right now. Oh, we need it. We finally need to have an honest conversation about guns in America. We've had a lot of honest conversations about guns in America. There's been a hot button issue for the last 30 years. The people who are saying we finally need an honest conversation are saying it because they think it is their sort of wedge into a political victory where they can finally defeat the people that they've been arguing with all this time. And I find the same. So getting back to the heritage thing, I just find it sort of ludicrous to talk about how, you know, there hasn't been a debate about foreign policy on the right until this guy discovered it. Um, that's just sort of crazy. Um, and, but it's a tactic that you get from, uh, from insurgent would be or self-styled or actual insurgent factions within a broad political coalition. Um, they want to paint themselves as the new truth tellers, as the ones who are going to shatter this alleged consensus that doesn't exist. I mean, this is, this is what, this is part of the tactic of, of like Tucker talking about how libertarians have run Washington for the last 30 years. That is an incandescently untrue and stupid thing to say. 
but it's the kind of thing that that you say when you want to move up a rung past libertarians or you want to delegitimize libertarians is to say oh they've had their shot they've been running everything until now and i think it would be helpful if more people understood that a lot of these arguments that you hear on um i'm sure it's absolutely the same thing on the left i just don't i don't i don't know where the bodies are buried or have a granular understanding of it all the time on the left but on the right you know a lot of these sort of tactics have less to do with the substance of the argument that they're making and more to do with a bid to be the leader of some group aspiring to be the the new establishment or something and if you pay attention close attention to when people talk about who's really running things again and again and again you'll find that it's just simply not, first of all it's not true about anybody because nobody there's no group that's running everything right and i don't even mean just mean in conspiracy sense i mean in any sense there's no faction that has complete control of everything and i've talked about this a lot i think last week but like when ted cruz was campaigning in pennsylvania and he was saying i just wish some politicians would would come and run and say look i'm a i'm a rhino squish member of the establishment um uh he was making an interesting point because he says instead everyone kisses up to, to trump and says that they're you know a principled conservative and he's kind of right about the fact that no that the rhino squishes types or what he and sometimes me would consider the rhino squishes types can't be honest about the fact that they think trump's a buffoon or they're not as right wing on various issues as ted cruz is um but they can't say it i think he's right about that where Cruz was absolutely wrong was suggesting that the establishment of the GOP is run by anything like moderate rhino squishes or whatever, or even moderates as we understand the term today. But in an era of, um, of, uh, in a populist era where we want to topple elites and we want to topple those in power because we think those in power are mismanaging our lives the worst accusation you can make about somebody or some group is to say that they're the ones in charge because we want to fire the ones in charge is the spirit of populism. And so it's always a tell when people talk about, um, you know, how the libertarians or the neocons or the, um, the moderates or the establishment or the Nelson or the Rockefeller Republican or whoever pick your target. Um, when they say that those people are in charge, they're wrong um, by every factual measure. But the way you should hear it is, this is the group I'm gunning for. And either they're gunning for it, you know, in the case of like the rhino squish, or the, let's put it this way. If you're someone attacking the Rockefeller Republicans uh, who run the party, uh, that's easy for them to do because there are literally no Rockefeller Republicans left. I mean, not to speak of, and if any do, they certainly don't run the party. So you're not apt to invite um, a counterattack from anybody. And um, and if they mention a group that does exist and they say they're in power, um, I don't know, the neoconservatives, the libertarians, whatever, um, uh, it's because they're gunning for them in some internecine fight. And, um, 
Now, maybe at one point I should actually kind of do a glossary thing about how to decode these things. Then again, I did something like that in my um, underrated second book, Tyranny and Clichés, and it didn't do nearly as well as I had hoped. So maybe the book about laughter, laughter and dogs may be the future for me. And with that, I got to go. It is one minute before the start of the Dispatch podcast, and I need to refresh my coffee. Um, thank you for listening. Again, I'll talk more about it in the close for the, the 500th episode, but I, I'm truly and sincerely grateful. And um, I talk a lot about earned success here. Um, and the feedback I got at that thing was really wonderful. And it gave me a really strong sense that I'm making a difference. And I'm, I'm truly grateful for that. And I'm truly apologetic for this very strange meandering conversation. And I will see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.